in, if we look at the etymology of that word in ancient Greek, apocalypse meant literally the lifting of the veil. So that's a, a nice reframe for these times that are so scary and so chaotic, chaotic, and there is so much uncertainty around them because what's happening is that the veils are being lifted and, and the systems that are no longer sustainable are imploding in front of our eyes and we're seeing the man behind the curtain. And I say man intentionally because I think what's what we're living through is the end of the patriarchal era. Hey, this is Christine Marie Mason, your host for the Rose Woman Pod. Today we're talking about the soul of power and awakening that in each of us. You probably already know that you have the ability to direct or influence the behavior of others and the course of events around you simply by being you, and that when you do it in alignment with your soul, your deepest essence, your deepest dharma, what you're here to do in collaboration with other people, you are unstoppable, right? You've seen what happens when you turn on your agency. So how do we do this in a way that's consistent and vibrant? How do we get comfortable with power and unwind our stories that power is somehow corrupt? Here to talk about these questions and many other things is the wonderful and delightful Christian de la Huerta. He's a coach and a spiritual teacher, and he's been a writer for 30 years. His new book, Awakening the Soul of Power, won a Nebula Award and a Nonfiction Book Award and has been acclaimed by all kinds of celebrities and things. I was very honored that he called in all the way from Quito, Ecuador, one of my favorite places on earth, to talk about his work. You have written a new book called Awakening the Soul of Power. What do you mean when you say power? Thank you so much, Christine, for having me on the show. You know, there's so much confusion in the world um, and I think most of us have an ambivalent, if not even conflicted relationship to power. There, there's, a, there's a part of us that wants it. There's a part of it is afraid of it. And, and part of what this book that I've written about is to help us understand the different kinds of power and what we mean by that. So I think the reason that we, f- that we have the conflict about it is that we fear that if we really bead all of who we are, like if we really stepped into our full power, that other people couldn't handle it and that we might end up rejected and alone. And also, I think we fear that we might abuse it. And no wonder, like all we got to do is turn on the news any given day or even glance through the headlines online to witness at least one abuse of power. And add to to the fact that we've been conditioned to believe that power is a bad thing. You know, with quotes like, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely, and what good-hearted person wants to be corrupted? But what they didn't tell us about that is that Lord Acton, who, who said that, was speaking specifically about political power, not the kind of personal power that we're talking about here. So when you add to that mix, the fact that we have also been conditioned to 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 make to think of the emotions as weakness, um, and which is so absolutely insane and misogynistic too, because especially men were conditioned to you know since we were kids, little boys don't cry, um, and why is that? Because only little girls cry, and is, is that weakness? And and so I mean some really faulty assumptions there. First of all, that that the feminine is weak. If you want to talk about power. Uh, let's talk about the power of creation and, and the resilience and the courage that resides in a female body. 
And also the emotions are not strength. They're not weakness. They're not good. They're not bad. They're just energy, like everything else in creation. And so what used to be spiritual teaching, that everything is energy, now we know from quantum physics that it's true. And so when you put all that into the mix, what happens is that we end up giving away our power our agency, our will, our preferences. We end up overriding our, our desires, our beliefs. We, we end up playing small, settling for less. And the sad part, Christine, is the reasons that we do it for. We end up doing all that stuff for an illusion of security, for a false sense of acceptance, and for crumbs, morsels of pseudo-love. And, and so the, the, the message of the book is that there is a way that we can step into power, into our personal power without having to abuse it or being corrupted and then without having it to be about uh, pushing it to be anybody down, stepping on them uh, in order for us to feel powerful. There's so much in there. I would just stay on morsels of pseudo love and take that apart for a while. Um, but I do, I do want to talk about another aspect that seems to feed into it is that when you talk about desire or preferences or will, I think there's something in the spiritual traditions that tried to get us get that confused with ego and with somehow being greedy and that there's some parsing that we have to do around wanting is a sign of your dharma. It's a sign of what you're here to do. It's not like a greediness. And, and maybe you could speak to that a little bit. Well, that's a really profound question. To, you know, to me, it's like I start the book speaking about ego and I start every retreat that I've been doing for more than 30 years speaking about ego because that is critically important uh, to understand if we want to have relationships that have a chance at working, if we want to have a sense of personal empowerment, if we want to have a life that is filled with meaning and purpose. Uh, because it's that part of us, that part of the mind that that is the obstacle to all of that. And, and the confusion comes because, you know, most of us who know that word ego uh, think it's, you know, arrogance, inflated sense of self. And it is that, but it's so much more than that. And then maybe if we took Psych 101 in college, we might think, you know, Freud's model personality, the id, the ego, the superego. And that's not what we're talking about when we're talking about ego, which is it's a concept more derived from Eastern teachings. And ego in Latin literally means I. So it's that sense of self. It's, it's a part of the mind that synthesizes information, sensory information. It, it can reach into the past, project into the future, and somehow weaves all of that into a coherent sense of self, like an, an individual personality. This is Christian, that's Christine. It's ultimately illusion, and it's both a helpful illusion and, and the source of all our suffering. To, to go back to your question now, and, and before I do that, here's, here's a, because we don't really have time to dive into the ego here, it's such a huge conversation, but here's a beautiful, just a quick image. If you put a baseball in the center of a stadium, that's what the ego is. Who we are is actually the stadium. And we've allowed this tiny, tiny, tiny part of who we are to think that it is all of who we are and to make very significant, consequential choices from its very small limited and always fear-based perspective. So if we're talking about empowerment, if we're talking about uh, free, personal freedom, we've got, that's the beginning of the conversation, understanding the ego. I could do a whole hour on what you mean by that. Um, but <laughs> let's let's try to come back to, come back to this piece. So I can identify, what I'm hearing you say is that I can identify a piece that is I, that is aware of the whole stadium, and that sees the agency, the will, the desires as a force for expressing the larger truth, not just the little baseball part of me needs. 
you know, I'm, I'm kind of, yes. is that, am I getting that right? Yeah, I, I would, I would agree with that. So it's, it's confusing, you know, like to understand who is doing the talking inside of our heads. Um, and, and so <laughs> mostly my mother. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, but here's some simple ways to know the ego I kid around and I went to law school. So it's always trying to be right and, and to prove that it's right and to build a case. And it pulls from here, it pulls from there, it uses large and complicated concepts, all of it to prove that it's right and to defend itself. So that's what the Buddha's referred to the, as the monkey mind, right? Because it jumps. That's that inner dialogue or that inner monologue inside of our heads that drives us insane because it has something to say about everyone and everything, every moment of the day. And so it jumps from thought to thought in the same way that a monkey goes from branch to branch. So whenever we find ourselves in, in that, um, you know, what I call the self-inflicted mind F, that we know that's from ego. The voice of the stadium, call it the soul, call it the higher self, call it whatever you want to call it, that the stadium part of us. It's that still quiet voice inside each one of us. And, and its language is very, very simple. So it'll say things like, yes, mm-mm, do that. I wouldn't go there. When, when do we get into trouble? When we override it and we go there anyway, like every time. Uh, and so part of like the, what the process is, is, is like really landing into the authenticity of, and the truth of us is bypassing that insane monkey mind and getting down underneath it and quieting the mind so that we can access the, the, the inner truth, the authentic self, the wisdom, the knowledge that is inside each one of us. That sounds like intuition a little bit. My, my intuition speaks in single syllable yeah. responses. Call it intuition. When we go back uh, to this idea of emotions, I was thinking uh, about my experiences when people aren't in touch with their emotions, that they're not very trustworthy and not intentionally not trustworthy, but that because they don't know what they think and what they believe and what they desire, they can't be counted on to keep their word, to keep their commitments. They, they'll go down a certain path for a while and then be like, oh, no. And that it's such a vital part of being human to be able to know your true desire and tap this intuition or this deeper knowing just to live in, in transparency. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And, and I think I totally agree that you know, to me, self-awareness is the first step to freedom. We can't do anything in terms of our process of healing or evolution if we don't know what's going on. If we're not aware of our deep down unconscious motivations, uh, our emotions, we're still being affected by that stuff from the subconscious. So, you know, like we're talking about the emotions being energies. We also know from physics that energy cannot be destroyed. So just because we stuff those emotions, we don't allow ourselves to feel them because of all the reasons we were talking about before. Right? We, we're scared of the emotions. We, we hate conflict. We avoid confrontation. We, we've, it's, there have been labeled weakness for, for all those reasons. Uh, and for maintaining, you know, like we don't want to rock the boat too much. So we stuff all of ourselves, all of our emotions into tiny, tiny little packages, uh, tiny little boxes to not rock the boat too much. But every time we do that, that, that stuff just doesn't go away. You know, energy cannot be destroyed. It can only change form. So what happens after years and decades and a lifetime of suppressing our emotions, we start walking around with layers upon layers upon layers of repressed emotional crap. And then here we are trying to have a relationship in the present, all of it getting filtered through that lifetime of unhealed past trauma 
and repressed emotions. It's like, yikes, I don't understand how any, any relationships can actually work because we haven't been taught how to approach them consciously and, and, and how to, to not, how to empty ourselves of this cauldron of, of repressed emotions, which have to come out, right? That energy has to come out. So it's either going to, we repress, repress, repress. And then the next unfortunate one comes and rubs us the wrong way and boom, volcanic eruption. And we cause harm. We cause harm to our, our loved ones in our relationships or repress, repress, repress. It's going to come out. And, and if the other way that it happens, it starts seeping out and showing up as bodily symptoms, cancer, ulcers, heart attacks. So we've got to get this. We've got to get clean with our relationship to the emotions and our relationship to our power. So we're getting um, a good set of prescriptions here. We're talking about self-awareness and becoming uh, more identified with the larger and deeper self, as well as emotional literacy and processing and deeply feeling. So we've got that. Now we're tapping into our power. Are there some other practices that you would recommend? I know you've got a whole bunch in the book. Other practices yeah. on cultivating power? Well, I would say to get really clear about understanding what the power and why we have that conflicted relationship. So when I talk in the book, I talk about you know worldly power or ego power versus spiritual power or soulful power. And so we tend to associate power with people who have money, who have fame, you know, who are high up on some, some kind of hierarchy, whether it's a corporate ladder or some institution. But the thing about those kinds of powers is that they're out, outside of us by definition. So because of that, they're fickle. Here today, gone tomorrow. Mm. Um, and also that worldly kind of power is always self-aggrandizing. It's always like kind of blowing itself up to be more than it is. Um, it's and it and it comes from a place of zero sum. Like so, so there's a limited amount of it. So you're having power takes away from mine, and and it's also has an agenda. Like it's always trying to grab something for itself. You know, like just like all the way that all of the shenanigans that the little ego does, it's reflected in, in that manifestation of power. As in contrast with our inner power that nobody can give to us, nobody can take away, and which is very humble. It doesn't have anything to prove to anybody. And yet, watch out, because it's really powerful. Think of, think of a Gandhi or a Gandalf, you know, in their simple monastic robes, their sandal feet. You would never know how much power they hold until it's needed. And then get out of the way. Gandhi brought the British Empire to its knees when it was at its highest point in terms of global reach and influence without ever shooting a single gun or landing a single punch. That's power. And, and, and that's inside each one of us if we can only allow ourselves to experience that and to express that. So it sounds like there's a, a more sustainable external manifestation of power when the power reference point is inside. Yes, yes, which is, which is another Buddhist teaching. As, as, in, as you know, above us, below is what's inside is reflected in the outside. So what do you think's happening there? Like, I'm getting more calm and comfortable with my own inner life. I know what I desire. I'm less reliant on outside criticism, feedback, reward structures. And somehow, because I'm less vacillating maybe like i'm not sort of re reactive to that that i can pull up fully in what i know and what i'm here to do and that creates some sort of resonance field is that i mean that's the picture i'm getting in my mind 
that resonates with me. That feels right for me. And, and you're absolutely right. The stronger our sense of self, the, the, the better we know ourselves, the, the deeper we go from that, you know, that journey from self-awareness to self-acceptance to self-love, that the less, the more that we're in our power and the less that we become dependent by anybody's or anything outside of us, any, any, whatever they think, or we don't, the less that we need external validation, we just get to be who we are. And I think you're right. I think we create when we're coming from that place, which, you know, I've lived in Miami on and off for many, many years in my life. And the, the visual of a storm of a hurricane is, is very alive for anybody who lives in, in Florida. So I think of, you know, when you, my image that popped into mind for me when you were speaking is the eye of the storm. It's like we stand in our center, in our power, knowing who we are, not needing anybody's validation, and we can allow everybody else to have their stuff. So we can allow that storm, you know, of people's dramas and judgments and and expectations, the demands, the conditioning, uh, the drama of the world to just be rolling I mean, just around us, and we don't have to get sucked into it. We we maintain our center, we maintain our eye of the storm, which is actually a huge service because that might, for some people, that might initially come across as selfish, but it isn't. Because if we allow ourselves to get to get sucked into somebody, else, somebody else's drama, then we're both stuck in it and we're both rolling around in the muck and then we're not good for anybody. What, what's, what you're talking about is so applicable. We've talked in the past on the show about two related concepts, the dominance hierarchy versus the competence hierarchy, like giving people respect for what they know, but not ever going under the thumb of somebody who's in a dominance hierarchy just because. And we've also talked about this idea of removing yourself from the emotion spiking news cycle. I think one of the benefits of being in my 50s now is that how many cycles we've been through, how many political dramas, economic cycles, this guy, that war. I mean, a year and a half ago or whatever, people were like, North Korea, this. Where's North Korea now? You know, so like it's literally you must be sane in a world that is trying to extract your vote, trying to extract your dollar, wants to manipulate you in so many ways for their own purposes. It feels like being in your personal power is one of the only loving and easeful ways to defend. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and to even serve, to make a difference. Yes. Let's talk about that. First of all, I want to ask you um, the questions that I got before the show around this topic were people saying, I play small. I'm tired of playing small. This is, it's, we're going into 2022. This is my year of stepping into my full power. When you hear that as a person who's coached people for 30 years on accessing power, what's your hit on that? What, what would you advise those people to look or look at or do? Uh, yeah, I would say yes, by all means do it because we need you. We need you to do that. We need you to be in your full power now for all of our sake. You know, as far as I'm concerned, we're like living in the most critical times in the evolution of humanity. We could say make it or break it time. The planet will be fine. You know, it might take a few million years, but life will find balance again. It'll reach homeostasis again. Whether we make it, hmm, that's the question, because we, we're just now beginning to witness whatever it is that we have unleashed on the environment. So anybody listening to this who's been feeling that call, which I think is the call from the soul, it's a call for, for heroism, to, to be all of we, we can be, to fulfill our potential, to make a difference, to serve in whatever way we can. Like this is it. 
Like this is the time that we've been waiting for. And so what do we do? Like immediate first steps, understand the mind, understand the ego. And that's why I walk the reader by the hand in this book. I know we were talking about how, how, little people read these days and we're you know celebrating and i was congratulating you on your book that just came out this week but i did intentionally designed this book in a very doable manageable way so short little chapters with interactive practices at the end of each and those practices are designed to integrate the teaching so that they don't stay at the level of teaching conceptual uh, because we don't need more information we've got information overload what we need is transformation both individually Globally. And that comes from really taking on and applying these teachings to our lives. So understanding the mind, understanding the differences between power, giving ourselves permission to own and to, and to step and own, step into and own our power, begin to become self-aware, like right? start observing ourselves. So rather than just going through life, uh, you know, buffeted by life's, by life's ups and downs, like start watching yourself. And asking yourself what questions like, right, in what type of setting, in what type of situation do I get triggered? And what kind of type of relationship do I give away my power? So is it mostly in intimate, romantic, sexual relationships? Is it with family members? Is it with peers? Is it in the, with professional uh, in the workplace where maybe survival issues are at stake? Is it with authority figures, you know, whether it's parental or bosses or uh, ministers or religious leaders? And, and so by becoming aware, then we can start, then we can do something about it because the tragedy is that we're doing all this stuff so unconsciously and we're going through life, not even aware of why we do the things we do. Yeah, that's a great place to start. First of all, I just want to come back to what you said about the call to being in your full power. When you hear that whisper, it is a call that is coming from the world needing you right now. It's the deep cry of your soul. It's yes. not just about becoming the best version of yourself. It's about pulling out what is essential in you as your unique gift, because the timing is so vital. And I want to talk about going into the service piece and, and power as a form of service in a second. Yes. So what gets in the way? Uh, if people know that they, they hear the bell ringing, they're going to it but then something stops them and pulls back. Is, is that all the fear stuff that you were talking about before? It's that four letter word, fear. <laughs> it, that's it, right, that's right. It's fear of rejection, fear of abandonment, fear of failure, fear of success. It's all fear. It's all based from the fear and fear is in the realm of the ego, right? Because the, the ego, part of the function of the ego is to maintain the status quo, even when the status quo is at best comfortable at worst, miserable. It doesn't care. It doesn't, it doesn't evaluate that. Its job is to maintain the status quo exactly the way it is. So anything that signifies change to the ego is scary. And, and so that's part of what we struggle with. You know, that's what we sell ourselves out for the for that illusion of security of, of a biweekly paycheck, even if the jobs that we're in are sucking the life force out of us, because just that fear of change. And and, and yeah, I get it. I understand. And to me, infinitely scarier is that another year, five years, 30 years will go by and we're still stuck in relationships or situations or jobs that are sucking the life force out of us. That's a lot scarier to me. That's what I'm yeah, most afraid of. Okay, I'm in my situation. I, I have a sense I should make a change, but I'm afraid. I'm, what do I do? You know, there's... Um, 
there's a there's a misunderstanding that about what fearlessness is. We think that fearlessness means that we no longer feel fear. And that's not what it means. You know, fear subsides, but I don't know that it ever goes away. It, it definitely becomes less and less and less influential, um, at least in my experience. Fearless, fearlessness to me means that we feel the fear and we don't give our power away to it. Like So we overwrite it. We transcend the ego's fear. There's a book by Susan Jeffers. I think it's you know probably from the 70s or the 80s. Um, feel the fear and do it anyway. And here it is in, in 30 seconds. Imagine concentric circles. So this circle, the inner circle, represents the, our comfort zone. This is where, we're, where we feel comfortable being ourselves, being with each other, being in the world right now. Every time that we take even a little baby step and stretch the boundaries of that comfort zone, it doesn't shrink back. Um, and, it, and we get to make all those choices. But imagine what if, what if, if we... Every week, we took one action, whether it's a baby step or a huge leap, to expand that, that comfort zone. Because we know that growth, evolution, doesn't happen in the comfort zone. Sorry, but that's just the way it works. I wish it worked otherwise, but it doesn't work that way. We have to do something. We have to stretch beyond what's comfortable right now and even place ourselves in a little bit of risk, like emotional, psychological risk. You know, so, so imagine if we did that every week. You know, At the end of a year, 52 weeks later, like our comfort zone is huge. I was terrified, terrified as a, as a teenager. I was completely shy, introverted, and I was a good student. Um, like I got pretty much 4.0, all A's, except for one B my last semester as a senior. And I didn't do this consciously. But looking back on it, I know that I sabotaged that class because it was an easy class. It was a self-study class. That all I needed to do was write a paper. And I turned it in late. And that was enough to get me a B. And that B was enough to knock me off the contention for valedictorian because it, there is no way, no possible way at that point in my life that I could have gotten up in a room, you know, in an auditorium filled with hundreds and hundreds of people. It's just, there's no way. And so, yeah, sad and kind of lame that I did that subconsciously, but flash forward. And these days, you know, I speak all over the world. I've spoken at dozens and dozens of universities on the TEDx stage. And so that's the point is that no matter what happened in our past, no matter what we have allowed ourselves to be held back by, all that stuff can be healed and it can be transcended. And that, to me, is what fearlessness means. And we can all do it. And we can do it at our own pace. I love this idea of feeling it and honoring its wisdom and then saying, not today. You yeah. know, not giving your power. I have a little tiny story from last winter. <laughs> I love to hear it. Uh, my son, uh, who's an extreme skier, he said to me, I want to take you to this lookout. And it, it to get there, you have to ski the trees. And there's like waist-high powder. Okay, I cannot do that. I am terrified of that. It is so physically daunting to me. And so we're standing there, and he goes, you know, you are a much better athlete than you think. You're a good skier. You can do it. You know what I want you to do? Stand there, and I want you to yell at the top of your lungs, I'm so scared, and then do it anyway. Just do one <laughs> turn at a time. Go jump. I'm so scared. Jump. And you know what? After about six or seven of those turns, I was like, I'm actually doing it. I'm not actually that scared anymore. And pretty soon we were at this gorgeous lookout, took our skis off and sitting in the valley. I got to see him transform into a teacher. And I also got to see the fear um, move away 
in with these little proof points, just like you're saying, a little stretch, a little stretch, and suddenly you were doing it. Shocking. What a beautiful story. And what a, what a, I mean, that's it. That's it. Right. The, like all the times that we have held ourselves back from ex- experiencing magnificence, freedom, because of that tiny, tiny, tiny little fear of the ego mind. Do it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let's talk about service now, because I think it's naturally flowing out of the way you're approaching power. We can just say it. The world is on the brink of environmental collapse and social collapse and complexities of all sorts. And there are a lot of different scenarios that are being played out in humanity simultaneously. The the ones that believe there'll be no more humans, it's all over. The ones that believe in neo-barbarism and are prepping for a post-apocalyptic world. The ones that, like Bruce Lipton, who believes in complete spiritual evolution, we're all going to wake up simultaneously. And everything in between, AI-enhanced species, you know. So, so at this time, at this juncture in human history, to make a change of this magnitude, how does the individual step into power and participate in that without being overwhelmed or coming from fear? Yeah, yeah, that is such a million-dollar question. You know, because I, 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 I know, like there are times where I, where I, you know, something happens in the world, or, and I just say, or, or even something in, in. Like in, in somebody who, whose life I know is like, and I just go, oh my God, like why bother? Like, like, like what can I possibly do about the environment or the polarization in the world or terrorism? Like what can I possibly do about that? I'm just going to go to the beach and eat a lot of dark chocolate and have a lot of sex. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> Where do I sign so, up for that plan for the end of the world? Okay. Right? And spend a lot of time in beautiful settings like your, like your son took you on. And then I said, all right, dude, chill. Right? Reel myself back. What can I do? Right? And the answer is always the same. I, 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 can, I can continue to wake myself up to heal to empower my, myself, to transform myself. And I can help as many people to do the same. And, and maybe, hopefully, there's something about that hundredth monkey effect that I think Bruce Lipton speaks about, that enough of us get it and wake up and then boom. I, you know, I don't know that that original story on which the hundredth monkey was based turned out to be a myth, but I do think there's still something about that critical mass. Um, I, and I so that's three percent, three percent. If you can get three percent of a population to care deeply about something that others follow quickly in terms of activism and policy change and things like that, they, because they're like the canaries in the coal mine of what the underlying the soul of the culture really wants. So when you get enough people who really care, they're actually tapping into a deeper vein. And I hope that's true. I do too. That's my hope. That's my hope. And you know, you mentioned the word apocalypse, and, and which is really interesting, uh, because we're sure living the times that we live in sure feel apocalyptic. You know, with global plagues and flame coming down from the skies in the form of missiles and bombs and stuff like that. And if we look at the etymology of that word in ancient Greek, apocalypse meant literally the lifting of the veil. So that's a, a nice reframe for these times that are so scary and so chaotic, chaotic, and there is so much uncertainty around them, because what's happening is that the veils are being lifted, and, and the systems that are no longer sustainable are imploding in front of our eyes, and we're seeing the man behind the curtain. And I say man intentionally because I think what's what we're living through is the end of the patriarchal era. I agree with that. Also, I'll just add to that. Thank you for the reminder on the apocalypse. Um, 
etymology. I just finished reading Catherine Keller's work, uh, Facing Apocalypse, which is, she's a theologian. And, and so what she's doing is rereading Revelations. And she reads Revelations as a pattern language. So mm. instead of saying, it's not a prediction, you could have actually picked this up in Rome or in the Middle Ages or now or in World War II and seen everything in it happening around you. That it's a repetitive pattern in human design or human culture that we're trying to wake up from. That this sort of new Jerusalem that is promised in that book is in that book is something that that has been on the horizon and experienced multiple times throughout human history, and that we continue to re-envision what that might be like. You know, the stakes seem so much higher right now because it's so globally visible. I I can't the scale of it seems so much more intense. But when people buy that story as a done deal, there's a fatalism to it that doesn't allow for action. So I would really love it if, as we're speaking to these awakening possibilities in ourselves and the world, that we can examine where the story of the old apocalypse model, the rapture story, the end of time story, where that story has creeped into our psyche and defend against it. And say thank you, but no thank you. That's not the story I'm subscribing to. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I love that. And I want to pick up that book. That sounds fascinating. And and I think it is. It is the end of the world, but is the world the way of the end of the world as we know it? And and is the end of, like we were saying before, the end of the patriarchal system that's been around for several thousand years that just it doesn't work anymore because we can't continue with this relationship of you know, you got to either screw it or you got to kill it. And, and this, it, goes back, it, got, it goes back to the conversation about power. You know, that's. Oh, my that's, God. I want to talk to you. I just want to go out to dinner with you. OK, wait, I, have to, I want to tell you something else. This is so exciting because, OK, freedom. We've been talking about freedom. So another topic that came up in the last few months was around how what we think of as freedom, like the freedom to vote, uh, freedom to ingest what we want, freedom of the press. All that stuff is like froth freedoms. But our fundamental not freedom is being in a body that gets hungry, sick, tired, thirsty, dies. And that the entire evolution of technology is in trying to free ourselves from the limitations of incarnation. Can you like wrap your head around that? And that it gets more and more extreme as we like try to heat our homes and then we try to get warm clothes and then we try to get like Till eventually you're not just in your cave, but you're in your cave and somebody's bringing you ice cream on demand, you know, like the, just, just, a, but that there's some wisdom in what, in or, before you can overcome the patriarchy, you have to accept the wisdom of what was done to try to free us from the limitations and weaknesses of incarnation. And then yes. just say it went too far and now we're in overcorrection. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's some deep stuff right in there. Um, and, and Sorry. Ah. I think you know to, to me the the feminine because I know the majority of your of your audience is women the feminine is it's it's more easily and relates to embodiment much more naturally it's much more in tune with the natural cycles and, and I think that's why this patriarchal separation um, that's all mine and, and subjugation and power over it just doesn't work anymore. It doesn't work anymore. It's like that's that's the, the the importance and relevance of these times. Like we've got to get this both from a personal perspective, so that we can find inner peace and and full expression and fulfillment at a personal level. Because if we don't, what we're risking is like 
a, a life of soul devouring mediocrity mm. and globally if we don't get this like if we don't heal our relationship with power it's like we gotta we're gonna blow each other up and tragically in the name of god the, on the female thing i will tell you i i in the work that i'm doing with rosebud there are women who are still tied to their cycles and their embodiment there are a lot of them but there are equally as many women who have ingested the hierarchy model and are acting from a linear forward, trying to override their biology, trying yeah. to mimic that to get material comfort, to get success, and have uh, shut down the part that knows about their yeah. deep power and cycle. And that's part of the overall mission of that organization. When I first read the title of your book, I read it two ways. One was awakening the soul of power like from a spiritual development standpoint but then i got this image of actually awakening the soul of individuals who are in those external power positions like how do you awaken i don't want to name names let's just say the ceo of a global corporation or the leader of a political party where do you how do you awaken the soul of people who are controlling a lot of resources and can that be a way to get leverage on change, I think I think it's beginning to happen, and, and I want to go back a minute to to go piggyback on what you said about women because I think you're totally right. Like this book is for everybody because we all struggle with power, but it has a particular dedication to women and and to women's empowerment, and that comes from my conviction that the empowerment of women is the single most important thing that needs to happen in the world. And it's not to idealize women, it's not to put women up on a pedestal, it's not to give women more, more of a mess that they have to clean up. It's because as a species, as a world, we've been running so off balance, so off kilter between the balance between the masculine and the feminine energies, which are inside every one of us, no matter what kind of body we're in. And, and women, of course, are also capable of abusing power, as you point to. Uh, but I believe that when women are in 50% of power in this world, we're going to have a very different relationship to war and poverty, hunger, social justice, education, how we treat the environment, to all of it. And, and so that's when I think strategically, like, all right, what what do we do? Like so many things, that so many challenges we're facing. And, and how do we dig ourselves out of this hole that we dug ourselves into? That's the, the one thing that strate strategically, I think if we do that, then it impacts everything else. You know, yeah, and I think if you have this this relationship to creating life, like I was thinking about, like, what if I spend my whole life making and raising life, and then somebody just for their own political gain wants to send them off to a pointless war? Like, that is a denial of everything I've put my life force into. Exactly. And I think the, cl the closer you're aware of, like, the risk one bears to bring life forth, and you stay connected to that, it's the harder it is to be cruel or destroy anything. Um, but you can do that without being connected to it, you know, which is also, okay, yes. Exactly. Well, I appreciate that. How did you get that way anyway? How, did you have a positive relationship with the feminine growing up or did that come later? I have five sisters. I'm one of nine kids, very Catholic family and uh, five sisters. And my dad was a psychiatrist, but he was working most of the time. So it was kind of a matriarchal structure in that my mom really ruled the roost at home. So I've always felt very comfortable with the feminine. And, and, you know, it's like going back to this, this what we were talking about earlier about this misperception of, of the feminine as weakness. I'm not going to do it justice because there's only one Betty White. But, but I read this, this story that she was being interviewed in kind of a group setting. 
And somebody said something about having balls. And she goes, wait, wait a minute. I don't know where we got this association between having balls and courage and strength. Because you thump those little things and the guy collapses over in pain. If you want to talk power, if you want to talk courage, let's talk vaginas. Those things take a pounding. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. That's true. That's true. She's, she's great. So you had sisters and a mom influence early. And you know what? Of all of the Christian churches, the Catholics still have Mary. They still have the Magdalene and they still have Mary, mother of Jesus-ish. You know, yeah, they have a uh, lot of female saints. They have, you know, Hildegard of Bingen. They have Joan of Arc, St. Catherine. I mean, they have a lot of good female Teresa. models in there. Teresa, yes, Teresa of Avila. That's lost in evangelical churches. You don't really see That's a true. lot of that. You have you have the like Mary and Martha in the evangelical churches as the two models of femininity. Either be devoted to study or take care of my house. No, there's probably right. a few more. I, I'm not a, <laughs> a Christian scholar, so yeah, I want to make sure that before we close, that if there's anything that you want to add about this book, you do that because I'm going to just encourage everyone to go get it that your power, your life force in the world is such a, it, it is the juice of the cosmos. It is the way divinity expresses itself. And you and your power is a beautiful thing. So I want you to get this book uh, from Christian, Awakening the Soul of Power, and let's all practice together. Anything you'd want to close with or a wish you have for the world? I think that's what it's going to take, Christine, that all of us practicing this, or, or, or maybe it's the 3% that you were talking about earlier. Anybody who's listened to this and who's listened this long is part of that 3%, right? It's feeling that call to be more, to express fully, because you're right, there isn't anybody, anybody in this universe or any other universe that has the same genetics, the same set of experiences that, that make each one of us unique. If we don't give expression to that, ain't nobody else going to do it. So to me, that's part of, of what this journey of empowerment is, is, is self-discovery, like figuring out who we are. And it takes work. That's why, that's why this book is part of a series of three on what it means to live heroically uh, in the 21st century. Uh, because it's, it's, it takes work, right? It takes work to, to look at ourselves and, and ask the hard questions, the existential questions. And why do we do the things we do? And why do we give our power away? And in which situations? And who triggers me? And, and you know, like turning that mirror around, if, we, if we're judging somebody else, like, how do I do that? And choosing rather than just reacting. Th those are all ways that we can transcend this ego level of, of existence that we're all stuck in as a species for the most part. To me, it's, it's, it's when we're willing to do this work, it's not only will we find personal fulfillment, but we'll, our relationships will actually have a chance of working. And that's what the second book is that I'm about halfway done through, is applying the, the concept of the ego and the power teachings to personal intimate relationships. Uh, so that's the one that's coming next. By all means, please, please, please do it because it's it's the hundredth monkey effect thing. And, and here's another story that I love, and it's from... Um, Elizabeth Saturis, which I think is such a beautiful, she's an ethnobiologist um, who studied the, the process of transformation from caterpillar into butterfly. And I think it's such a beautiful myth for our times because she discovered, she named what she called imaginal cells, which are in the caterpillar, but they actually contain the DNA of the butterfly, which is slightly different. So the immune system of the caterpillar views it as a, as a threat, as a foreign object, and it kills it just the same way that it would kill a virus or a bacterium. 
And so you could say that that's where humanity is. Like we have our, our prophets, our Jesuses, our Gandhis, our Dr. Kings. They pop up and we take them down. They pop up and we take them down. There's, there's a moment in the, in the life cycle of a caterpillar, though, where some internal mechanism is triggered and it goes into this hyper eating phase. They just like eat and, and you know, denude trees around them. And you could say that that's where humanity is, that we're engorging ourselves and using up our natural resources without even regard to our own survival on this planet. That's the bad news. The good news is that when that happens, it also triggers a hyper production of imaginal cells. And so now there are imaginal cells popping up here and there and everywhere. Not only that, but they start gravitating to and finding each other and creating what she called imaginal clusters. And once they do that, the immune system of the caterpillar can no longer destroy them. And so it tries and it tries to destroy them and it can and it tries, it tries, it can't until it finally fails and it gives up and it implodes. And that's when the caterpillar goes into the, into the cocoon phase and, and that's what the imaginal cells feed on because it, it, that nutrient soup of the caterpillar is what the imaginal cells feed on as they become the beautiful butterfly. And that's where I think humanity is now, that the implosion phase is the systems that we're talking about, the patriarchal system, uh, the, our relationship to nature, uh, the gender differences that are just no longer sustainable, the otherizing of each other, um, all that stuff is just no longer sustainable. And the good news is that we, the ones who are, who are still listening to this conversation, are the imaginal cells. And so that our job is to go out there and find the other, the other awakening imaginal cells and tap them on the shoulder and so that we can start creating those imaginal clusters. I love your imagery. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for doing this work. I can't wait to read the second in this series, Awakening the Soul of Power in Intimacy, the place where the deepest triggers happen. So make sure to tell yes. me when that's coming out. I will. And thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I have loved our conversation. I've done, you know, so dozens and dozens of podcast interviews. I think this is probably the, the, the deepest conversation that, that we, we dove deep. And it was just fascinating on the back and forth on the level of your questions, which is uh, exciting and stimulating. So, so thank you. And thank you for doing the work that you do. I mean, not, not only here, but I know that all the work that you've been doing with, with the, the Rose uh, Woman and the different companies and, and the TEDx um, productions that you have, that you've done over the years in the Bay Area. Uh, so thank you for doing all that you do on all our behalf. Aww, I'm blushing. <laughs> well, thank you for joining Christian De La Huerta and me on this episode of the Rose Woman Pod. As always, I would love to hear from you. You can reach me at the.rose.woman at Instagram or come find us at rosewoman.com where you can also get gorgeous performance body care products and intimate wellness products and tons of written content that can help you live a more beautiful and optimal life. Also, if there was something in this episode that moved you, would you please take a moment for me and copy the link and text it to someone. Say, hey, I like this. You might enjoy it. Helps us get the word out. Keep learning, keep growing. You are whole, perfect, and complete as you are, but this ongoing mm, dance of creation, agency, innovation, isn't that what it's all about? Love each other. See you next week.